All right, let's, let's start Exodus. We'll just let me just tell you a couple of things tonight. I know we started reading Leviticus. I'm going to give you kind of a brief introduction to Leviticus at the end of our time in the Old Testament time, but we're not going to cover Leviticus tonight, okay? I figure we got enough in the, in the Exodus to cover, so the first few chapters of Leviticus that you've read, if you've got questions on those, save those for next week. The same is true for Mark. We started Mark. Um, we will uh, pick up Mark in full next week. I'll give you a couple introductory remarks about Mark um, as we do that, but just kind of wanted you to be aware that we're going to do Exodus, finish up Matthew, and then, of course, the Psalms and the Proverbs. And we'll start with, with Exodus. What questions or uh, points of emphasis or things that you noticed uh, in the Exodus readings over the last two weeks? So that's from Exodus 19 to 40. Let me first ask, did anybody do their homework? Look at all those hands. I am so proud. I'm like a teacher that's proud of their students. All right? Anybody want to share their homework? That's all those hands are not raised. Here, I got a couple, all right? Remember the homework was to rewrite the Ten Commandments as if you're writing them for a child, okay? And so um, I got a couple of emails, and so I'm going to read a couple of these. I won't tell you who their names are. See, if you email me, you can stay anonymous, right? And uh, in a minute, we'll talk about maybe reading a couple others. But uh, we got to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Here's what somebody rewrote. Uh, the Ten Commandments like, spend more time worshiping God than doing anything else. Love God more than your DS, your cell phone, or etc. When you say their name, say Jesus and God in a way that would please them. Let the spe- Sabbath be a special day where you honor God by worshiping Him in church and at home. Honor your parents by obeying them and talk to them in a respectful way. Choose a peaceful way to settle arguments. Moms can't have boyfriends. Dads can't have girlfriends. Never steal. Don't tell lies. Always speak the truth. And be glad when your friends get new stuff. Don't envy them. All right? Here's another one, a little different take. God is the only big guy that has the right rules. You can't love your stuff more than God. Love him first. Don't ever get mad enough to use God's name with your bad choice of comebacks. Sunday is a good day to fit God into your schedule all day and enjoy it. Remember, Dad and Mom are cool even when we aren't. Pretend we are. Don't ever hurt anything or anybody permanently. If it isn't yours, leave it alone. Same rule as seven. Above only includes material stuff. This is relationships. Don't lie for anyone or against anyone. And it's wrong to want somebody else's we even if it is newer and better. All right, so those are pretty good attempts, right? Here's what I want to do. If you did that tonight, at the end of the night, I want you, if you would be willing, to give me a copy, okay? And over the next two or three weeks, I'll just, we'll begin by reading a couple of those, all right? We do that, if we read everybody's tonight, we will waste all our time. Not waste, we'll spend all our time. Um, And so we won't want to do that. All right, so in Exodus, things that you noticed, questions you have. That's good. Somebody else. Exodus 19 through 40. Well, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that they set up the tabernacle towards the end of Exodus. They say they set it up, you may remember when? At the beginning of the second year. So it appears to me that this whole time frame took a year or around, and they established the calendar kind of based on that. Um, they then give us 
you know, I've said this. It doesn't give us the exact timeline, but I think that's a little clue in there. Um, so, and I think that's an interesting portion of Scripture where, may, and I know, that, I know that the end of Exodus starts repeating what that's already happened in Exodus some, but there's that interesting portion where God says, okay, it's time to do all this stuff. Go get your stuff. Bring it back. And if you've got skills, I want you to use them. And uh, I was talking to Deborah a little bit this afternoon. We were talking about this. And I said, and then they have that phrase that you will not hear in our business meeting and that most churches have never said, which is, we've got too much stuff. Quit bringing the offerings. Right? You're not going to hear that in our business meeting tonight. I can guarantee that. All right? In fact, we're going to go in a different direction. But what's interesting is, and I think this is the model for all people of God, is when Moses gives that command, bring their stuff. God's, God tells Moses, tell them to bring their stuff. And he lists all that stuff to bring, and he lists all the things they're going to build. He says, and craftsmen, you get ready. You're going to build it. So you get the stuff, craftsmen. Now, I don't think that meant craftsmen, you don't have to go get stuff. I just think it meant you're going to give and you're going to work. Okay, Whatever you can do, you're going to do. And so you have that point, and then there's a little phrase in there that says, and all of the Israelites went to their tent to get what they could. The attitude wasn't, oh, and it wasn't, well, let me go see if I can rummage up some stuff. There's the attitude of excitement about going to get their stuff to bring it back. I want to be part of what God's about to do. I want my stuff to be a part of this. Just an interesting little thing. I know that wasn't your question, but it gave me a chance to talk a little bit. All right? Other questions or observations, things you noticed in the Old Testament reading? Eddie, go ahead. In Exodus 32, when he was going to destroy them, right? And and God says, I'm going to destroy the people. I'm just, I'll create you a new one. We'll, we'll do okay. And Moses says, oh, God, don't do that. And God says, oh, okay, Moses, you're right. Here's the thing. This is a huge theological question, Eddie. And I know you knew that when you asked it. That has been debated for thousands of years. Is can you change the mind of God? Now, the truth is that Scripture teaches that God knows what's going to happen. Scripture teaches that he knows the end from the beginning. He knew it before he created. He's known it since he created. He'll know it after creation has been changed into what it's going to be. So that we could do something that he doesn't know about is not scriptural at all. There's been a recent movement of theologians that call themselves um, open theist. Right, Alan? You, you, you just come. Give, you've written some stuff on that back there. Alan's in class. They're studying stuff. They believe, there's a new group of theologians, that God doesn't know the future. That it's happening and that he's powerful, but he doesn't know what the future is going to be. Scripture doesn't teach that at all. And so to say that God was going to destroy them, and Moses convinced him otherwise, would, I don't think, is proper understanding of Scripture. In the, in the way of this, that God didn't already know that was going to happen. 
that, does that make sense? I mean, I think God, when he said he wasn't lying to Moses, I, just, I think when he says, I think it's just best if I destroy these people, and Moses begins to intercede, he wanted Moses to feel that pressure of, no, 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 they're not that bad, God. I love them. They're your people. You, you've brought them out of this. We, we can't start over. This is something. You know, um, when I was in seminary, there was a debate that happened in one of my classes about when, uh, when is the proper time to leave a church. And I, these two professors were going at it pretty good, and we were all sitting back like, you know, we're seminary students, we, you know. And one of them said this, all I know is when I leave a church, I leave the problems I know for problems I don't. And I think Moses was kind of like, God, I know these people, and they're not good. But I'm leaving them. If you give me new people, I don't know where we're going. And so he was just giving that tension for him to wrestle with. And then he wanted him to be the one to say, it's kind of like, when God said, I'm going to do away with Sodom and Gomorrah. And Moses says, well, can I convince you to, to save it if they're five? Yeah, but they're not. And so I don't think he changed God's mind. I think he used it as a tool to bring Moses into line with what he's doing. Does that answer your question? I got there in a roundabout way, but I got there. All right. Other questions? Go ahead, Mr. Marvel. Yeah, and... Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna I'm gonna go, Miss Betty. I'm not gonna leave you hanging, okay? In Exodus thirty three, you have very close together this description in verse eleven where it says the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend inside the tent of meeting. And yet then you have the glory of the Lord spoken um a little bit farther down, um in verse twenty, same chapter, verse twenty, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live, okay? There's some discussion there in what it means that that face-to-face it might be more of a um, colloquialism, that that translation there is used kind of to say that you, you speak directly, that, that it doesn't actually mean that he went into the tent of meeting and he sat in a chair and God sat in a chair and God's spirit, that you know, that, that they sat across and talked, that it displays the intimacy that was there. And then when Moses says, show me your glory, that's more of an actual statement of I want to see you. I don't want to be in a relationship. I don't want a spiritual kind of experience. I want to see you. The glory there means the manifestation of God. Okay? Uh, and so glory, in the Old Testament, glory will come to mean a lot of things. One of the things that will come to mean is how God manifests himself in his works and in his people. But right there, Moses is saying, I want to see a tangible presence of you. And God says, you can't do that. Where the face-to-face thing is more of kind of colloquial. I don't know of a better way to say colloquialism. It just, it's, a, it's a phrase that you throw around. We, you know, I, I saw him the other day, and we, we shot the breeze. Well, you didn't shoot the breeze. You talked, all right? Um, yeah, well... Right. I don't think he, he didn't see God there. It, that's what I mean. The face-to-face just means that it was the close relationship. Right. Well, but that that also, most people think that that was an external thing around the tabernacle so nobody else could get into. I mean, it, it says there, as Moses went in, the pillar of the cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke to Moses. So it's not saying necessarily that that cloud is the presence of the Lord. It's that that signified to the people 
God and Moses are doing business. They're talking. This is not a time for you to be there. Uh, that it was a kind of a barrier. Now, I'm not saying that it, God, it also symbolized God's presence had come into that place, that God was speaking with him, but that particular part of it came and stood at the entrance. And see, people would come to the entrance of the tent standing there and worshiping, but they couldn't, they wouldn't venture in. All right, other stuff. Those are good questions. John Carpenter, are you talking about, are you talking about the beginning of Leviticus? Okay. We're not going to get into Leviticus, but I'll talk to this, all right? Because there's a lot to get into Leviticus. We're going to introduce it. They don't have the sacrificial system like they did then. No. A lot of that was left out when the temple is destroyed after Jesus' death and resurrection, about 70 A.D., about 35 years later. The temple is destroyed, and a lot of the cultic worship, and that doesn't mean we think of cult, we think of cults. Cultic just means their ceremonial worship. A lot of that kind of worship went away when that was destroyed. Um, they don't. They still celebrate the high holy days. So Yom Kippur, which we'll read about, which is the Day of Atonement and the, the things that happen there, they do a lot of symbolic stuff now. So they don't. They don't follow through. Now, I'm not saying there aren't any Jews that do. There are some very uh, uh, Orthodox Jews. But in today's world, and I, I'm not going to get this number right, so I'll just tell you, and then you can go look it up and tell me how wrong I am. Um, it's about, I think I've read about 90 to 95% of Jews today aren't considered practicing Jews. And that's not even, I'm not even talking about all the way to the Old Testament practice. I'm just talking about Orthodox. They don't practice Orthodoxy in any way of the Jewish faith. So... All right, there's another hand over here, but I'll come back to you, Bill. Miss Ann, Exodus 24, 9 through 11. All right, let me get there. Okay, yeah, I have no idea. I don't know. Um, she's asking, Miss Ann's asking that if you get to chapter 24, Moses and Aaron, Nabab and Abihu, and the 70 elders went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. I don't have a, I don't know. And you can read some commentaries and stuff, and people jump around that passage. Um, and they really don't explain it very well. Or they don't really try to. Uh, what they usually go to is then you see in verse 12 that God calls uh, Moses and Joshua to deeper intimacy. He brings them farther up to him. And then... Moses goes all by himself eventually, and so that it's kind of like God, kind of like with the disciples, even the apostles, that Jesus had the twelve, but then he had the three, and then he had John, so that there was that relationship. They kind of talk about that, but I have no idea what they saw or what that means. Ms. Ann Dixon went stump the pastor for the night, all right? Bill? Yes. The magical jumping out of the fire calf, right? Because that's the way God would want to treat. We'd want God to treat us. Uh, only thing you can say is the grace of God. It's Exodus 32. I'm not sure of the day. Here, let me tell you. Let me tell you that I'm reading an interesting book right now called. It's by a guy named G.K. Bill, and it's called "We Are We Become What We Worship." And he makes some interesting statements about this passage. Now, 
he says that this passage is the basis for God's condemnation of idolatry throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And that's a pretty big statement. That this is the place where you see God begin judgment that we will see for the rest of the Old Testament. And what he says interesting about that is, now, the truth is, Aaron let things get out of hand. He did. The calf that they brought out can be traced to an Egyptian god. And so not only, I mean, we we usually just think of this golden calf coming out. Not only is it a golden calf, but it is a golden calf of an Egyptian god that God has just proven he is superior to, that he is God of all. What I think is amazing is the lack of patience of those people. Forty days. Now, here's the thing. On day 40, they didn't throw those things in the fire and it jump out. Although that's what they tried to say, right? Isn't that the most... Doesn't that sound like something your four-year-old would tell you? I just threw all this stuff in and it just exploded all over my room. I don't know how all those toys got out. So you know this was a process. They melted it down. They shaped it. They formed it. They got it together and then said, this is the God that rescued us from Egypt. What's interesting is God calls them a stiff-necked people there, which would become a phrase that they use throughout. And the other animals in that day and time that were called stiff-necked were livestock that could not be led. I hadn't had much livestock training in my life. But what I understand is when a cow doesn't want to be led, it gets a stiff neck. And he makes the point that these people are just like their God. They're stiff-necked, and they're not following direction. There's not a good explanation for Aaron except that by the grace of God, God decided that he... By the grace of God, he decided that he would just he would use Aaron for a greater purpose, that he would transform him and consecrate him and use him. May not answer satisfactory, but it's what I see. Miss Teresa, yeah, yeah. You have you have him. You know there, where Aaron really messes up is when Moses comes down and says, "What happens, Aaron?" You know, because you do see that sign that Aaron goes, oh, my gosh, what are these people doing? We've got to build an altar to the Lord. We're going to have a celebration for the Lord tomorrow. We have got to, we have got to get this right. And then Moses comes down and he goes, oh, man. And so you may have this illustration that Aaron had let it get out of hand, but he may not have been personally involved to the stake that he, he would claim that he was. You know, I mean, he says that, well, they, I told him I'll throw it in and out jumped a golden calf. It is a turning point in the history of Israel for several reasons. One, you have Moses come down and he destroys what God has instructed. You have this idolatry that will plague them. Until the exile, it plagues them. And you have, following that, one of my favorite passages out of the Old Testament, where Moses goes to God and says, You gave me these people to lead. It ain't working. You have this thing where Moses, who, it's almost like Moses wants to say to God, and he won't because it's God, and he knows that. I told you. (laughs) Remember those excuses I gave you? They're all coming true. They're not being led. They're not listening to me. 
The guy you gave me to be my spokesperson's down there jumping around while they're worshiping a cow, telling me it jumped out of the fire. All this stuff's happening. Who are you going to send with me now, God? And God says, I'll go with you. And then a phrase that I have claimed for my life, and is a phrase that if you want to claim a phrase and ask God in your prayer life about his will, this phrase, if you're not going, I don't want to. He says in that passage, God, if you're not ahead of us, I don't want to go. Even if it is the promised land. The idea is it's not the promised land if you're not there. And it's not your people if you're not there. And I'm not your follower if you're not there. If you're not there, I don't want to go. And so in my prayer life, sometimes I'll say, God, I believe this is the direction you're leading me. This is the direction you're leading the church. This is the direction you're leading my family. But if you're not there, I don't want to go. Now, the truth is God is everywhere. And so it's not a physical thing. It's a blessing and a will kind of thing. Other stuff in Exodus. And my quick answer would be no. And this is where I base it on. When we get to Solomon dedicating the temple, which we'll get to, you know, sometime in July, um, Solomon dedicates the temple, and the glory of the Lord fills that place where they can't even get in the building. I mean, it says that they literally stop outside and get on their faces on the ground because the glory of the Lord, the manifestation of God. It's not his face, but it was so powerful they couldn't doubt it. And yet then God says to Solomon, and by the way, when my people turn away, even though what they've seen today, they say, oh, it'll never. (laughs) We are not turning back, God. I am with you all the way. Never again am I going to do that. Never again am I. Now, that may sound familiar. And he says to Solomon, when they do, and I dry up the heavens, and rain won't fall, and the crops won't grow, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will come down and I will heal their land. So that phrase that's used all the time for revival is spoken at one of the greatest revival moments in the history of the world. They're just stubborn people, you know. You know, the thing that, that when I used to read this Old Testament, I would get so frustrated. Like, didn't they just know? I mean, I mean, how ridiculous they look. I mean, don't they just know what they're doing here? And, and then I just, one day I remember God kind of asked me the question. I mean, he didn't ask me the question. He just kind of told me a statement. He said, you would have done the same thing. And I, no, no. And I felt like Peter. No, I will be with you to the death, Jesus. Jesus said, no, you're going to deny me three times. You would have done the same thing. We didn't change that much. But, I mean, it's an interesting what if. Joyce, yeah. The key word there is murder. God's righteous anger poured out on people is not considered murder. Murder is premeditated, unjust killing. And the word and the word in the original Ten Commandments is, thou shalt not murder. It's not thou shalt not kill. So, because we're going to deal with that a lot in Joshua especially. Judges see a lot of killing that happens. Let me address one thing real quickly. I had a couple of people concerned about the lack of respect for animals in here, right? Um, and this is what I said that day, and I, I preface this with I have a pet. I'm not saying pets are bad. I'm not saying they're wrong. But 
nobody in the history of the world until the last 50 to 100 years have thought of animals as recreational pets. They, they were animals that worked. They were animals that served a purpose. I'm not saying that if you have a dog or a cat that you love that anything's wrong with that. I'm just saying that they were considered to be used for a purpose. The main reason is you didn't have benefit to think of them as pets. You had a cat, even on the farm 100 years ago, you had a cat to kill things. You had a dog to help you do things. You had horses, you had cows, you did work. That doesn't mean God doesn't care for pets. It just means that he loves humans a lot more than he loves animals. And that's evident throughout Scripture, that we are his chosen, treasured people. We're not animals that happen to have evolved into a higher level of being. We are his chosen, loved people. That's as good as I can say it, I think. All right, let's go to Matthew. Unless you have a burning question in Exodus that has to be answered tonight, or you're going to doubt your salvation in the morning. All right, let's go to Matthew. We're done with Exodus. Exodus is the story of God's people being rescued. Exodus is the story of God beginning a law. Uh, let me just say this about Leviticus real quickly. The key word in Leviticus is holiness. God is a holy God, and he wants a holy people. Okay, we'll talk about what that means, flesh that out a little bit. You're, let me just encourage you, make it through Leviticus. Okay? You've already seen in the first few chapters, kill this, you get the liver out, you get the fat off, you throw burn it, you throw the blood here. If you don't have that animal, you bring this animal and you get the fat out, you get the blood off, you get the, you know, I mean, it's the same thing, all right? Make it through Leviticus, okay? We'll talk about some things in Leviticus. I saw this week an interesting thing. There was a pastor in the north that planted a church and his first year of sermons was out of Leviticus. Praise be to him and God Almighty who helped him. I've spoken a couple of times out of Leviticus, but not very often. Make it through Leviticus. Numbers will have a little less of that kind of stuff in it. There will still be some of that. Deuteronomy is going to be some repetition. But if you make it through, here's my promise. If you make it through to Easter, okay, and we're in Lent, right? You know what Lent is? It's not the day after Fat Tuesday. Lent is today is Ash Wednesday. Lent is the 40 days before Easter. So we're 40 days till Easter. So for the next 40 days, you make it through. After that, it will become just part of who you are, and it will be enjoy. It's gonna, I'm not saying it's not going to be enjoyable. There are just going to be days that you've got to make it through. Okay? So make it through. Okay? Um, another thing to think about when you're reading Leviticus is, you have a people that have never governed themselves. And so, we are reading basically a primitive constitution for a people as given directly by God. Okay? Now, we all study 1776. We all study Declaration of Independence, the Ten years after that, the forming of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, we all study that and how our government was formed. What you're seeing is God giving Moses the blueprint to form a government, judicial, all that kind of system to a people that have never done it before. Okay? Now, you just imagine if we decided in this room we are going to become a nation. 
and God's told us that, and our leader's going to, you know, we're going to have a leader, and we're going forward. What are we going to do? I don't know. Well, here you go. Here's your stuff. And so that's what's happening here. So that's why the details will go, why in the world is he telling them that? Because he's building a legal system, a sacrificial system, a religious system, a social system. He did that sum in Exodus with if your neighbor, you know, if your if your bull gores the other guy's bull, go give him a bull. You know, I mean, they're just basic stuff. You go, well, that seems reasonable, but we've all been around people. And when my bulls fought, your bull walked into his horn, right? So understand that. All right, let's go to Matthew. We finish up Matthew. Tell me some things you noticed, questions you have, things you want to know about in Matthew. We started with that wonderful passage where Jesus is talking about the uh, Pharisees and who they are. Miss Teresa, Here, here's what most scholars would say. that, that They would say that probably has a twofold prophecy fulfillment. Miss Teresa is asking about in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discount. Uh, discord, discount. It's not, not Dollar General around here. The Olivet Discourse, uh, where Jesus is speaking about the end times, and he says in verse 15, so when you see, this is the NIV, so when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet of Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay? They think there's a twofold uh, fulfillment. One is what I described earlier when Jerusalem is destroyed, and that the abomination of desolation, that that whole thing is the temple of God being destroyed, okay? In AD 70, the Romans get tired of the Jews. There's an uprising, and they wipe it off the map almost. I mean, they just, in American history, you think of Sherman's march through Atlanta, where they just burned it down. They destroy Jerusalem. And so you have a lot of these things, Jesus talking about the temple being destroyed, about all this stuff happening that would have immediate fulfillment there. Uh, now, they would also say that it has been fulfillment greater in a bigger way in what will happen at the end of time. And it depends on your personal view of how that all comes about and how you interpret Revelation, that there will be uh, that final battle, that final um, desecration of God's people or temple or place. I mean, you know, the thing is, we have to understand in their day and time, the temple was God's dwelling place. In our day and time, you can't destroy God's temple. You can go after his people, which is his temple. But um, So it has a double fulfillment. Does that answer your question, Ms. Teresa? And that's where, I said most scholars, that's where I come down. I think that it immediately talks about A.D. 70 or so, and then it goes on after that. Anything else in the Matthew account? Anything you notice that you may not have seen before? Yes. Are you talking about the zombies over there? Yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, we don't put that in many movies. Uh, well, I'm getting there. Over in Matthew, when Jesus dies, you have this death of, of Jesus. The temple is torn, right? Verse 51 of chapter 27 we talk about that all the time. The temples, the temple a curtain is torn from top to bottom. We've seen even in Exodus the importance of that curtain separating. And then it says after that, uh, the tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. 
They came out of the tombs, and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. That's not on many Easter cards. Right? No, you haven't. Well, here's the thing. You just, you know, at Easter you're talking about the resurrection of Jesus, not the resurrection of other people walking around. Um, Here's what we know about that. Um, The Bible says they came out and they walked around. That's all I know. You know, I, I mean... We will get to a place in Mark where we will talk about the end of Mark is kind of a strange text, and we'll discuss that a little bit. Um, I'm not saying it didn't happen. I think the Scripture says it, and you verify it in Scripture, then it happened. Now, I don't know if they walked around for a little bit and went back. I don't, I don't know if they hung around for a few years. I mean, I don't. it doesn't give us any clarification of what happened next. No, it says godly people. So... I said zombies, but I mean, I don't. I mean, that's what it sounds like, doesn't it? I mean, that's. They, <laughs> I don't know how normal you. Can, <laughs> I don't know either. I don't. I don't know what they look like. I don't know if you know. Well, here's the thing. You know, Ben. There, that's an interesting question. Ben said something about glorified bodies, but we're on this side of the resurrection. There. Jesus doesn't even have his glorified body yet, and so I don't know that they. I don't know. I don't know that they had been. Kind of reestablished because you know there's that in scripture it makes it kind of clear that that we will and we're about to i'm about to here we go um scripture (laughs) tells us that when we die here we're separated from our body and that at the end of time our bodies and our souls will be back together and that in the meantime we are in a place not to where we will eventually be but we're with jesus and we're kind of hanging out and waiting. Now, it'll be better than that. It's not just, with Jesus, you're not just kind of hanging out and waiting. We're not sitting on the front porch at Cracker Barrel rocking. I mean, we're there. But And so to say that they, you know, it doesn't seem like we'll get our glorified bodies till Jesus returns and the new heaven and the new earth is established. And so I don't know about the glorified bodies. But, I don't, but other than that, I, but if they've been in the grave very long, you wouldn't think they're walking around with their, decayed bodies either I, I have no idea yes miss joan they were they were look like it, well they said you know in the mount of transfiguration it's they looked they looked illuminated is the best i can say there i don't know that we have actual physical touching and and, you know, like when Jesus comes back in his glorified body, which is the first fruits, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, there's touching, there's eating, there's fellowship. In that scene, you just get this idea almost as if it could have just, I'm not saying that they weren't seen or heard, but I'm not sure that that symbolizes a post-resurrection glorified body. But it's a good question. See, it always leads to interesting places. Bobby, back in Matthew, you talking about? Yeah. You don't know why why there? Yeah, and, and back in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, um, a couple of weeks ago I, I said that what I think is happening in this whole passage is he's kind of starting them out on the training wheels. And he's sending them out to do ministry. And he's he's kind of doing this, saying, don't go anywhere other than where you're supposed to go right now. And right now that's to the lost sheep of Israel that's who you understand most. That's who you understand best. And I want you to deal with them. 
Don't go outside of that. I mean, it's clear throughout the rest of Jesus' teaching that he doesn't disregard the Gentiles. But at this moment, at the beginning of ministry, he's kind of, I think training was a good description. He, he's letting them go, but he's saying, I don't want you to get too far out there on your own yet. Yes. Well, in Jesus' Jesus' ministry, he's ministering to Gentiles almost from the beginning. But when he's sending his disciples out by themselves, he's saying, wait just a minute, wait, not yet. Eventually he'll send them out. And, you know, we get to the end of Matthew, he obviously says, every, every nation, I want you to go make disciples. And so I think it was a progressive revelation to them. You have to understand my message first to my people, and then we'll move to the Gentiles for you. All right, anything else in Matthew? A lot of great stories in this Matthew. You got the, I mean, of course, we get to the Holy Week and we're talking there. Um, you have this this description um, where Jesus uh, is talking to the Pharisees and he gets on to the Pharisees about being whitewashed tombs, um, about being clean on the outside and dirty on the inside, and it's one of those passages that always kind of makes me stop and think for a minute that the Pharisees were considered to be the most religious people of their day. They were considered to be the people that had the direct line to God. And yet Jesus just looks right at them and says, you look good on the outside, but your religion has made you dirty on the inside because you're not following God. And so I think it is always a caution to us as especially believers in the Bible Belt of the South. Uh, you know, I saw this week they put out the uh, study again of, the, in America, where people are most likely to go to church, and Mississippi is number one, Tennessee is number two, right there with Alabama. We're in the place where people go to church all the time. Uh, but just because we go to church all the time doesn't mean that we're not clean on the outside and messed up inside. And so it's always a good corrective and thought-provoking thing for me as I read his description to the Pharisees, who he is not gentle with in any way. He's gentle with the sinners. He's loving with the sinners. He's harsh with the religious people. He just is. All right? Anything else in there? One of the things I want you to notice as we read through Matthew, as we read through Mark, Luke, and John, is similarities and differences. Okay? So I want you to notice especially the differences in how they handle the last week of Jesus. Matthew handles it in a kind of a, a big way. Uh, Nobody handles it as extensively as John. John spends half his book on the last week. Um, you have Luke, who's the uh, the journalist, who's writing. Also, it's important to understand who's writing for whom. Matthew was a Jew writing for Jews. Uh, he's very Jewish in the way he writes. And I know for us that's hard to see, but he's trying to show that this is the Christ, the Messiah. Uh, Matthew obviously was a follower of Jesus. Uh, when you read the three, the four Gospels, you have two direct followers of Jesus, apostles of Jesus, and two that are connected to apostles of Jesus. Okay? And so we get to Mark, and most people think Mark's connection is Peter, and so you're almost reading Peter's story. One of the things you'll notice, even if you've started Mark, one of the things you'll notice is Mark does not use a lot of words. He's quick. His favorite word is immediately. That's the favorite word in the book of Mark. Something will happen immediately. If you noticed, even in, you can turn to Mark for a minute. We're not going to spend a lot of time in Mark. But next week we'll come back and cover this. Um, I just love how, you know, Matthew gives, remember Matthew gives that long genealogy. You think about the book of John. John gives that whole story of, 
of uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. You think about Luke, and he takes three chapters almost to tell this birth account of Jesus. And then you get to Mark, and Mark says, the beginning of the gospel, the Christ, the Son of God, John the Baptist came baptizing. And then Jesus is there in ministry in verse 9. Right? Verse 14, he's calling disciples. This is chapter 1. Verse 21, he's driving out evil spirits. In verse 29, he's healing Peter's mother-in-law, and he's healing a bunch of people. I mean, it's, it's almost like Matthew kind of leads us up to it and then places us there. Luke kind of gets us. John philosophizes, and Mark just drops us down in the middle of the story and says, we're going, get ready. Strap on, it's time to go. And so they're doing that. I mean, you know, you just see in there. By the way, you did notice that Simon was married. Right? Peter was married. How do we know that? He has a mother-in-law. To have a mother-in-law, you have to have a wife. At least last time I checked. All right? Um, And so you have a mother-in-law, which means when Peter left his family to follow Jesus, he left his family to follow Jesus. Okay? You need to realize that. So you'll notice that. But just be, I want you to pick up and watch. I mean, you know, the book of Matthew, Matthew's own story, it was several chapters in before Matthew's called by Jesus. In the book of Mark, he's called in the second section of the second chapter. It's quick, all right? We'll be through with the book of Mark pretty quickly because there are only 16 chapters in Mark. And it's actually probably shorter than what you have in your Bibles, but we'll get there when we get there. All right? Miss Carol, in the back. Miss Carol's asking about the other Mary at the tomb. If that's not his mother, why don't they say it's his mother? The answer is it's ambiguous there. Mary was a very common name. Lots of Marys. So it's very likely, I think the chances are that that's not his mom. But so did most males in that time frame. I don't, and here, I mean, James and Simon and Jesus were the most common names of that day um i I think it's it's a thing that that's that nobody really ever talks about because we don't know for sure and the reason is because of exactly what you said most scholars think that if it was mary the mother of jesus other places there it refers to her as mary the mother of jesus not james and simon now there are some that say well jesus had died and so she would no longer be the mother of jesus she would be the mother of of those other two, James. But you remember Matthew's writing from after the resurrection and Jesus is alive. And so nobody really nobody really knows, but most assume it's not his mom. They think that she left the cross. And what's interesting is we really don't have, we don't know what happened after that. I mean, you had that scene at the cross where James, I mean, we're not James, where Jesus says to John, here's your mom now, take care of her, which is interesting. If Jesus, you know, I think there's something to be said that if Jesus' brothers would have been around and supporting, he wouldn't have had to say that to John either at that time frame. Well, there's discussion about whether the Mary that washed his feet with tears is Mary Magdalene or who that is. That's what I'm saying. Mary is just, a. it's kind of like Herod in the New Testament. There are all kinds of Herods, and it's hard to get them all figured out. Mary is one of those names that's hard to get figured out. Who's who? All right. Anything else in Mark? 
We're not Mark Matthew. We're Mark now. All right, let's go to Psalms, Proverbs. Anything there you noticed or questions you have? And I'm going to give you one last observation, something interesting I found. All right, go back to Exodus 30. And before you get there, as you're turning, tell me the three gifts the wise men brought. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? Gold has always been said because it's for king, royalty. The frankincense, as we've seen, was burned in worship, right? So you do that. And then myrrh is talked about often as the burial spice, right? Here's an interesting thing, and I don't know how this plays, and uh, I didn't find a whole lot of scholars that cared about it, but I think it's interesting, all right? Verse 22 of chapter 30. What are they making? When you have the thing there, what are they making? What are they making there? They're making the anointing oil. And the first thing in the anointing oil is what? Myrrh. Now, it's liquid myrrh, so it's a little different. But here's an interesting thing. In Bible times, not only because of the recipe, I mean, that's an actual recipe. You see how much it gives them, half of this. It's like a tablespoon of this and half a tablespoon of that. It gives the full recipe. Um, an interesting thing is I was reading a pre-release copy of a, uh, a lady's writing a book on garments in the in the Bible, and she had a whole chapter on uh, the the uh, Aaron's high priestly robe. And she says you could give that to a seamstress and they can make it. It's, the details are as detailed as any pattern that you can find. Just interesting thing. But so you, they're making this oil. Now the oil is being made to anoint everything to set it apart as service for the Lord. And I have now it is used as a burial spice, but it's used as one of many burial spices. But I think it's also interesting that myrrh is being used here as the primary ingredient in the anointing oil to set it apart for service for the Lord. And you get to the New Testament, and the three gifts are the royalty, the worship aspect, and then you have perhaps this setting apart for service for the Lord. All right? That's something new I'd never noticed before. Any closing comments, thoughts, reactions? All right, we're in Mark and we're in Leviticus. Keep reading the Psalms, too. I hope in this time when Leviticus may be difficult that the New Testament and that the Psalms and the Proverbs are kind of lights of hope, rays of sunshine in those moments. Um, Do you notice in the Psalms how often it seems that the psalmist is in distress? Save me, O Lord, raise me, all that, right? One other thing that we'll notice throughout that we won't spend a lot of time on tonight, but at some time we will, that when Moses is described to God, God tells him who he is. He gives him this description. I'm a God of loving kindness, gracious, slow to anger, great in compassion, those kind of things. That will become a moniker and a description for God over and over and over again.